In the 1920s, cinema was booming with the silent film era. Actors had to tell a story and express emotion without speaking. Some of the first horror movies were silent films. One of these in particular was called London After Midnight. This film featured a petrifying vampire, one so terrifying that it influenced the murder of a young woman. everyone welcome to sentenced i'm kara and i'm caitlin hi hi are you okay (laughs) i'm so tired we're starting this episode off great yes it's gonna be an interesting one my brain is maxed out for today it happens i'm sorry it's been a little bit of a roughie over here do you want to go into it at all no okay (laughs) we don't have to Uh, it will remain a secret. Well, a secret. I'm just kidding. It's not really a secret. How are you? Uh, I'm good. I went and did some fun blood work today, and I hate blood work. I always, like, panic uh, when I go in there. And so, like, I've never passed out or anything. Like, it's not it's not that. And they're always like, you have such good veins. I don't even know why you're freaking out. And I'm like, because you're taking my blood. Yeah. I don't want you to have it. I want to keep all of it. For as long as I can. And not only do they have to take my blood, they had to take six freaking vials worth of blood. But thankfully, they have like a new little way of doing it where instead of feeling them pop off each tube, they have like a little like a little tube, like like an IV kind of that runs off of it. Yeah, like a catheter. They've had that for a while. I've they've never used that on me before. Every time they've always like popped them off like on my arm and I could feel it jerk. Oh, my gosh. But I think because they had to do so many this time that they used that little thing. The lady that did it was super nice. Like, she just talked to me, talked to me the whole time because I can't look. Like, Mm. it's all, like, a mental game with me with getting my blood drawn. So I can't look. I have to talk my way through it because, like, if not, I'll just panic. Um, But she was really sweet. And she wrapped my arm instead of putting tape on it, which is always so much better because the tape, first of all, sucks. And then it rips all my hair out because I don't shave my arms anymore. So it's just Yeah, I always just like take the little um, cotton swab and hold it on there because I hate having to take the Band-Aid off or the tape off. And then the wrap, even for me, like I'll, it'll like cut off my circulation. So I'm like, nope, just let me hold it here and compress it for like 30 seconds and we're good. I always leave it on way longer than I think you're supposed to. But I've heard it the longer you leave it on, the less likely you are to bruise. So I don't usually have a bruising issue except for like over a year ago, they did my right arm and I have a freaking scar on my arm from where they did it. Like that lady was really rough, but I don't think she works anymore. Bye. I don't know what her name was, (laughs) but this lady was super nice. So, and then I had to pee in a cup. Well, two cups, which I was annoyed about because I'm like, I went pee before (laughs) I went in to do my lab work. And so I had no pee to give them. So I had to like divide it up into two cups and it was like nothing. (laughs) So I'm pretty sure when I see my doctor next week, she's going to be like, um, we didn't get enough pee from you. Inconclusive. Here you go again. Which is always funny because I pee all the time. But of course, when I need to, I have nothing left. So yeah, little TMI for everybody. I also haven't drinking enough water today. So 
Drink more water. I'm going to have to. I'm on my second cup since I've been home. So my fourth cup of the day. But mm. anyway, that's all that's going on with me other than, you know, work. Yay. Yay. I hate um, <laughs> do you Nobody have... from work listens to this, so it's okay. <laughs> <laughs> do you have any true crime updates? Um, Not really. I mean, things are still happening with the Alex Murdoch trial. Um, and then, did you, did you watch any of the Gwyneth Paltrow ski trial? Oh my god, trial? no. I can't. I watched, like, little clips of it, and what a shit show. Like, she won a dollar. Like, she literally sued the guy for nothing because she was just trying to make a point. Mm, I feel like she... Okay, never mind. I'm not even gonna go down that road. Yeah, but it was, like, it was just really awkward, like... I don't remember if it was, I think it was her, her uh, lawyer was just like, they were being buddy-buddy and like when a pal was like, I love your shoes. Like while on the stand. Ew. It was so awkward. She would. I was like, why are we doing this? This is a waste of everybody's time. Um, I'm surprised she wasn't like, oh, Goop. Everyone should, <laughs> everyone yeah. should subscribe to Goop. She's a little baddie. I'll give her that. Um. But no, other than that, I mean, my next case is an interesting one because it's kind of TikTok related and I'm really excited about it. And I just found it today, like while scrolling through reels because I don't actually have TikTok. Okay. Interesting. Well, I'm looking forward to hearing about that. Yeah, I hope I can get enough information on it. If not, it'll have to be like a mini episode or something. Okay. Well, my episode today is a little bit shorter because I know uh, the last episode was like an hour and a half after being edited. So this is my gift to AJ is having a shorter episode and all of you guys because. Was it my episode that was like an hour and a half? No, it was mine. It was the the one that just aired. So Mary Vincent and Roxanne Hayes. Yeah. Yes. That was a good episode, though. It needed... It needed the full hour and a half. It definitely did. Um, I still can't get over her survival and everything. Like, it's I know. just crazy. It's insane. I have had a few people message me, and they've been like, oh, my gosh. Like, that is insane how she survived and just about him and how he should have been locked up. So I think the consensus that, yes, he never should have been um, released from jail. No. Yeah. Most and it's just... Shouldn't. It's just crazy because it's like, what other victims are there that we don't even know about, especially if he was targeting people that, who he thought, you know, didn't have homes or families, you know what I mean? How many victims were there that didn't have homes or families? And it's just, it's really upsetting. It's upsetting. And it's like, you have to think of like all these big serial killers that have like 10 plus victims how they're always like oh this person may have been a victim this person may have been a victim it's like we'll never know mm-hmm. we can only just assume that they are and you know tie it up to that but it's like what if they're not too like we're saying like oh this person did it but it really was just like a one-off killer that got away with it right they just did it in the perfect place at the perfect time i know it's really scary so if they don't like have trophies or anything it's always hard to tell who actually committed the crime mm-hmm. i agree are you ready for today's story yes okay so uh, we're gonna hop in a little time capsule here okay and, uh, we're also gonna take a little 
airplane over to the other side of the pond. Hey, hey. first international episode. Woo, woo. <laughs> so, yes, we are heading to England in the 1920s. You're taking us way back. Yeah, I am. I think technically we'd have to take a boat to get there in the 1920s, not even airplane. Um, well, unless, unless we are super big. Yeah, but if we're taking a time capsule, then I mean, I feel like we're opening a lot more doors. <laughs> Is this like Stewie's little, little time travel disc? Mm-hmm. That he just like throws on the ground. Okay. Yep. <laughs> okay, that makes sense. And then I'm gonna do this whole episode in an English accent. Please don't. <laughs> I'll leave. I'll straight up leave. <laughs> Two of the things I hate the most in life. One is being serenaded by somebody singing or playing an instrument to me. <laughs> and two are accents that aren't like actual accents. I'm not saying that like I don't appreciate a good accent, but when it's not somebody's natural accent. Or professional. Me, yeah, it makes me cringe so bad. But yes, yeah, so we're going back to the 20s and our story actually incorporates a movie. Um, the reason is, is because... The perpetrator in this story said that he was influenced by a character in the movie to carry out this crime. Okay. So very strange. So it's in the 1920s, especially in, um, well, this film in particular, it was a silent film. Not a lot of films had talking in them until later on. So this story, the film in this story is called London After Midnight. Never heard of it. No, you haven't heard of it because it doesn't exist anymore. What? Yeah. There How does the movie just not exist anymore? Good question. It's weird. There's a lot of mystery around this story because it was a horror film and all of a sudden it just like stopped existing and then I can see you Googling over there. And then you don't know anything. You didn't see the light on my face. <laughs> allegedly, the last copy of it burnt up in the MGM vault fire in like 1965 or 1967. So even the sources of the fire that this like the last copy of this film burned in, I couldn't even get a clear answer on that. Woo, spooky. Yeah. So London After Midnight is a 1927 silent horror mystery film written by Todd Browning. Todd Browning also wrote Dracula and Freaks. And this movie starred Lon Chaney. Um, Lon Chaney was a huge actor of the time. He was in The Hunchback of Notre Dame. He played uh, Quasimodo. And he was in The Phantom of the Opera. Both of those are also silent films, and so obviously not the musical Phantom of the Opera. But he was kind of known as a chameleon um, because he would wear kind of like how Johnny Depp does. Like he's a good looking guy, but he wears like weird prosthetics and he makes himself look really freaky. Right. The film was an adaptation of The Hypnotist, which was also written by Browning. And unfortunately, it was one of the last films to star Lon Chaney before his death in 1930. After this movie was made, a remake of the film was also made in 1935, but they called it something different. They called it The Mark of the Vampire. Interesting. So it sounds like he does like a lot of horror films. 
Yes. And so a lot of just a lot of really darker and even to make it more ominous, like in these films, um, since they were silent films, they would just be an organ playing. I don't know if you've ever seen a silent film before. I mean, other than like clips of it and like other shows, mm-hmm. not really. I used to when I was first in college, I thought I wanted to be like um like a film producer or something in film. And so I would have to watch a lot of these and they're, they're pretty interesting, but it's definitely not something I would probably want to like throw in some, my regular mixture of things. There's so many silent films that he's been a part of that turned into like bigger movies later mm-hmm. without being silent, like Oliver Twist, mm-hmm. uh, the Hunchback of Notre Dame, Phantom of the Opera, which is one of my favorite musicals. Yes. Which I want to say his rendition of Phantom of the Opera is the one that you see a lot, though. That's like the old school pictures. Oh, yeah, it is. The one with him with like the really dark eyes and like the super prosthetic nose that's like right. up. And like, okay. the, so he's not necessarily wearing a mask that covers half his face, but his face just looks really creepy. Okay. Yeah. I've definitely seen like that picture in particular a million times. Yes. So just to give you some background on this film, I'm going to read you the synopsis. Okay. Um, and Long, Cheney's character in this, again, he, um, he widened his eyes and lips with hidden wires to give himself Ooh. like a maniacal grimace type of look. So he looked real, and he wore like vampire fangs, but it was like all the fangs. Um, kind of oh. like in Supernatural, you know how they're vampires. It's not just two things. Listen, I'm gonna tie this all together for Disney people. You know who he looks like? Is the Hatbox Ghost on there you go. the Haunted Mansion? Yeah. So if you're a Disney person, that's exactly who's character. It's creepy. I'm looking at it right now. And I'll post a picture for um, all of our listeners so that Ugh. they can. My nightmares. I'm gonna have nightmares tonight. Do you know how vivid my dreams have been lately? I'm sorry. I hate you. I hate this story already just because this guy is terrifying. Okay, anyway, I'm sorry. Uh, sorry. <laughs> the plot of the movie is Sir Roger Belfort, the head of a luxurious mansion, is found dead alongside a suicide note. Professor Edward Burke, played by Cheney, is placed in charge of investigating the incident. Sir James Hamlin, Belfort's neighbor, was the last to see him alive. Naturally, Burke questioned him in Belfour's butler, Williams. Burke's questioning leads him to suspect Arthur Hibbs, Hamlin's nephew. Five years later, the mansion has become dilapidated and is now a subject of ill omen. The mansion is now occupied by an eccentric old man who goes by the name Roger Belfour and a ghostly woman renting from Hamlin. Professor Burke is once again drawn to the house to investigate stories of vampires residing within. Unbeknownst to the others, the man is actually Burke in disguise. With use of hypnosis and a fake setup of vampires, Burke tricks Hamlin into revealing that he was the one who murdered Sir Roger Belfour five years before. So that's the movie that is now unavailable to ever watch again called London After Midnight. But I just I thought it would be kind of fun to read that and give you a picture of what this character looked like. Yeah, he's terrifying. Yeah. Very I regret scary. Googling him. 
Um, so now we're going to kind of get into the story. So the victim, unfortunately, in the story was a young woman uh, named Julia Mangan. She was born in 1907 and she was raised in Glengariff, a small isolated village in the far southwest coast of Ireland. It's funny because in my last episode, I was giving this guy shit for not being able to pronounce like any cities in California correctly. And here I am like in a whole nother country and I'm like, okay, this is instant karma. (laughs) They're they're really difficult, though, because it's like we phonetically pronounce it differently because like they don't pronounce like certain letters. So we're like pronouncing every letter. Right. But then they may not pronounce every letter when they say it. So and also I the audio book that I was reading, that's a published book like they should. I'm not published over here. I got like my little (laughs) setup and I just I'm just doing my best. Julia was born into a large Irish family, and she had pale skin and fiery red hair. Julia was described as an eternally cheerful and kind girl who always put others before herself. Because her family was struggling financially, she decided to move to England, where her brother Patrick had just moved a couple years prior. Her plan was to find a job, start a life for herself, and eventually send money back home to her family. At just 20 years old, Julia found work as a domestic servant in Kingsbridge at a place just two roads south of Hyde Park. She resided in a small basement bedroom, which she shared with the housemaid, Mary Leah. In her free time, Julia explored London and everything it had to offer. She loved the food, the fashion, and of course, the films. And now we're going to get into the perpetrator. Robert Owen Jones was born on December 28, 1899 in Carnarvonshire, North Wales. He was the, and I'm going to put air quotes around this, illegitimate son of Lizzie Jones, who was a struggling mother. And I hate that word illegitimate because she he was legit her son. They just say illegitimate because she wasn't married. I know, I hate that. I was like, and what makes me laugh about that is that the people that were making it such a big deal were most likely the ones having affairs and having illegitimate children to begin with. Yeah, exactly. Like, she just got pregnant and she happened to not be married. But it is, like, you cannot give birth to a son that is legit not yours. Yeah, exactly. Also, <laughs> so. his birthday is the day before mine, so. Uh, well. But I wasn't born in 1899. <laughs> no, okay. I, I am not 120. Four years old. Is that the right math? <laughs> I don't know, but like I'll believe it right now because I'm not about to calculate that. It's it's unknown exactly what his mother Lizzie struggled with, but she was unable to care for him, and eventually he was put up for adoption. Mister and Missus Williams of Northwest Portsmouth adopted him, and thus he became Robert Williams. Moving forward, I'm going to refer to him as Williams because I can't sit here and say the name Robert to you over and over and over again because that's (laughs) your husband's name, and it just feels weird. I mean, you could, but it's okay. Williams was now part of a loving family and even had a brother who was also adopted. He was educated at Garden Council School, but he left at the age of 14 and he entered the trades. From ages 14 to 19, he worked as a farm laborer, and then from 19 to 21, he was an apprentice at a railway and then continued as a carpenter for the rest of his life. 
He was five foot seven, had dark hair and blue eyes. Just makes me think of Harry Potter. Yeah, a little bit. Mm-hmm. As a teenager, Williams was diagnosed with neurasthenia, an ill-defined condition resulting in fatigue, headaches, anxiety, paranoia, and mood swings. So this isn't necessarily a condition anymore. In the late 19th century, before the mental health community had differentiated psychiatric illnesses as we do today, there was what they call neurasthenia. And so it just now we call it anxiety, depression, postpartum depression, and even bipolar disorder. But it sounds like back then they just kind of lumped all of these together and put it under one umbrella. Well, you were crazy back then if you had any of these problems. So I know. Doesn't yeah. surprise me. Yeah. Um, it's it's pretty. So yeah, basically now it's an abandoned diagnostics, but it was also previously referred to as Americanitis. Like American itis, which like <laughs> this was I know, which is kind of fucked up, but it's also kind of funny because it's like us Americans like always being dramatic, like Yeah, true. <laughs> like, oh, we're we're feeling anxious. It's American itis. Listen, anytime I'm on Instagram like scrolling through reels, like the comment section usually kills me. So many people, especially when it's about like our politics. So many people are just like, I'm not from the U.S., but is the U.S. okay? <laughs> like, they're just like, are you guys all right over there? And it's just like, no, we're not we're okay. We're not okay. We never should have came here. <laughs> I think it's also important to note that in March of 1927, Williams was acquitted of assaulting a young woman. And that's all we really know about that. This was in, again, the 20s. And so going off of newspapers, that's all I could find. After this, he fled from North Wales to London. This is when he met Julia and he introduced himself as a 27-year-old Welsh carpenter named either Walter Ellis or Walter Mills. So using an alias, which is kind of interesting because back then it's not like you could just Google someone and be like, oh, he was acquitted for this, this, and this. Like it would take a while for word to spread. So, Right, but just like your name association though at that time, like – if he was, like, walking around, like, Robert Williams, everybody would be like, oh, I think I heard of that guy somewhere. So, but it's interesting that um, he changed his name to Walter, but had potentially two different last names. Yeah. So, not quite sure what that was. It also could have been, you know, if he was dealing with some kind of psychological disorder, then maybe that was that was part of it. I'm not sure. You mean you weren't around in the early 1900s to know these things, Kara? What's wrong with you? I was, but I was just a baby. (laughs) I thought we had a time machine. (laughs) (laughs) I was really busy back then. (laughs) On October 10th in 1927, Julia and Williams had been seeing each other for about a week when Williams lost his job as a carpenter. Soon after that, on October 20th, 1927, Williams attempted to, and this is a trigger warning, end his life by slitting his throat with a razor, but he was unable to hold the blade straight, so he failed. It's just such a brutal way to try to do it. Like, ugh, okay, uh-huh. we don't have to talk about it again. We got pretty deep into it last time, so, but still. Right. No, that sounds pretty horrible. 
On Sunday, October 21st at 8.10 p.m., Williams was visiting Julia in her quarters, despite it being against the house rules to have a male guest in there. Um, Her brother Patrick and his girlfriend Hannah came by only to find Julia crying and Williams extremely intoxicated collapsed on her bed. Williams was muttering incoherently, I want Julia, I want Julia, I want Julia. Patrick, so Julia's brother, picked him up and kicked him out of the house, which is her employer's house, obviously, because she's living in the basement. Mm-hmm. Um, and he told, he basically told him, never come back. Uh, Julia declared to her brother Patrick, I never want to see him again. Tuesday, October 23rd, 1928 was just like any other day for Julia. She completed her household duties and finished for the day around 7 p.m. She ate dinner, got dressed, she put on her white gloves, and she told Mary Leah, I'm going out for a breath of fresh air, and at 8.15 p.m. she left. Julia Mangan was never seen alive again. Mm. I know. At 10.10 p.m., police officer John Green raced to Fountain Gate in Hyde Park uh, to a report that a couple had passed out, so to speak. What he found, of course, was not a couple passed out, but he found Julia's body between the pathway and the horse track. She was lying face down, her left hand still clutched at her throat, her white glove drenched in blood. Oh, wow. Robert was also found face down, his back turned, and 36 feet away from Julia. His throat was slit, and the bloody razor, he had the bloody razor in his left hand, and in his right hand, he was holding a letter addressed to Julia from her mother. That's odd. Yeah, very, very strange, and the contents of the letter were never disclosed, but... All we know was that her mom wrote her a letter and he was holding it for some reason. Williams was then rushed to St. George's Hospital. He was operated and then discharged a week later when he was arrested for her murder. So he survived another slashing of his own throat. Yeah, he survived another suicide attempt. Wow. An autopsy on Julia, of course, confirmed that the injury was not self-inflicted and considerable force had been used to inflict such a wound. While Williams was in jail, he was examined by Dr. Watson, medical officer of Brixton Prison. During this assessment, Dr. Watson did not see any signs of insanity in Williams. He didn't see any reason that indicated that Williams did not know what was going on or how detrimental his actions were on October 23rd. While meeting with Dr. Watson, Williams never mentioned seeing a face or being persuaded by anyone to do this. However, when he was later interviewed by Dr. East, the medical inspector of prisons, he appeared emotional, depressed, and did recall the face of Long Cheney on the night of October 23rd. Dr. James Woods, a specialist in mental disease, would examine him as well, and it was his belief that Williams had suffered from an episode of epileptic autonomism, a seizure of the frontal lobe where the patient is lucid but unaware of their actions as if they were sleepwalking. In the trial, Dr. Woods stated that epilepsy was not confined to persons of low mentality. He knew people of high intelligence who suffered from epilepsy, and they were able to do their work quite well. 
according to Dr. Woods, um, this would happen and a person would be completely unaware of his contact, similar to a dream or a nightmare. Hmm. Yeah. The defense argued that this was a case of insanity. Um, The doctor that treated Williams at St. George's Hospital after the incident was too ill to attend court. So I believe that's Dr. Watson who they're referring to in this. And so the judge says, quote, that's a misfortune, but I have no power to call a witness who is too ill to attend. What remedy do you suggest can be applied? Do you ask for the postponement of the trial until next sessions? The defense argued that the doctor's deposition should not be read as he could not cross-examine the doctor, and to that, the court's judge ascended. So, basically, the defense didn't want them to read any of the medical records saying that Williams was okay because they didn't, they wanted to go with their own narrative. So, they were like, oh, no, you can't read these court documents because that doctor is not here, and he can't attest to that. So, I mean, it makes sense, but at the same time, like, it's his written statement but from before he was too ill to attend. So, I mean, it seems only fair to let them read it. Also, is this the Dr. Watson? Like, Sherlock Holmes and Dr. Watson? It is. <laughs> yes. <laughs> yes, the fictional character is real. Uh-huh. Yep. <laughs> yeah, there's there's a lot of layers I felt to this. like. I felt like people were going to be screaming at us if we didn't acknowledge the fact that there was a Dr. <laughs> Watson involved in this, so I had to address it. No, I was going to address it, but I felt like it would be inappropriate for me to do so. <laughs> so I Don't appreciate worry, I that. got it. <laughs> but, but yeah, no, it's just like, so Williams is, so basically right after he commits this act and he's well enough to see a doctor, Dr. Watson comes in and Dr. Watson examines him and he's totally fine. Oh, and then Dr. Watson gets ill, and so the defense is like, no, Dr. Watson can't come in. He's sick. No. Yeah, so it's totally just they want what's best for their narrative. In his testimony, Williams declared that him and Julia sat at the bench talking. And this is a direct quote. We sat down and talked for a bit. I said I was going to give up the drink and that sometimes I felt like I could not give it up, end quote. Julia said, quote, I will pay for you. God can do nothing unless you do yourself, end quote. And that's when William described, Williams described what happened next. Quote, my head was then getting troublesome. Thoughts came into my mind. I felt my head getting fuller and fuller. It seemed to be steaming at both sides, like a red hot iron being pushed inside my head. I thought I was in a room and a man was standing in the corner pulling faces at me. He threatened and shouted at me that he had got me right where he wanted me, end quote. When the judge asked who this man was, Williams said it was Long Lon Chaney's character in London after midnight. So he's definitely trying to pull, like, the insanity card. Yeah, and so it's just weird because there was no mention of this, like, when the act happened, like when he was taken to the hospital, it wasn't like, oh, like Belfour or whoever made me do it. He was there. What happened? It was like he was fine. And then all of a sudden it's like, I don't know. He like saw this movie and he was like, that this is it. This is yeah. what made me do it. Williams also testified that he attempted to end his own life on several occasions. Once by throwing himself on the hind legs of a horse at the age of 14. 
What does that mean? Like he threw, like he wanted to get bucked from a horse. But like, so he threw himself like at, I guess, its hind legs. And so this was right around the time of that um, diagnostics too. That just sounds like a really shitty way to get fucked up. Yeah. Like not even to die. Like you're just going to get injured if you do that. Yeah. John Pierce Thomas, a deacon of the chapel that Williams' family attended, testified that he knew of five instances of insanity on Williams' mother's side. So I'm assuming that's his biological mother. Mm-hmm. Dr. Gordon Hume, who attended to Williams for his neurasthenia, considered Williams to be abnormal but not insane. According to the available reports, no firm diagnostics was given during the trial as to whether or not Williams had epilepsy. On January 10th, 1929, the jury found Robert Williams guilty and he was sentenced to the death penalty. It's unclear as to why, but the death penalty was eventually reprieved and Williams was sentenced to life in prison. On May 14, 1933, Williams tried to take his own life in prison by slitting his wrists and throat. He attempted to end his life a total of four times in prison, and he succeeded in December of 1947 by stacking several mattresses on top of one another and jumping off of them. That's a lot of mattresses. That's a lot of mattresses. I was like, wait, first of all, what is this? The princess and the pea or the princess and the, what is that tale? The princess and the pea. Yeah, but, okay, so from what it sounds like, again, this is from the newspapers and these are old ass newspapers and it's really hard to read them because like, like literally like the letters are faded. Like that's how. Yeah. (laughs) Like not because like the, like the language. Or whatever, but it sounded like they had him in, like, a padded room. But the padded rooms back then aren't, like, what they are now. So they just used mattresses to, like, pad a room. But still, like, I did he hang himself? Because I wonder if that's what he did. If he just, like, climbed up them enough and, like, was able to hang himself from, like, the ceiling. Because how the fuck do you, like, jump off mattresses and kill yourself? It's, it sounds like he, like, dove. But That's maybe, a lot of mattresses. Maybe I just read it wrong. Maybe I, I mean, yeah. Either either way, that's a very, uh, for lack of a better term, creative way to go out. Yeah, I don't know. It's unfortunate. I mean, it, it's hard because he, again, did a terrible, terrible thing. And it, sound, it sounds like he hurt at least two women. The woman... The first woman that he was acquitted of hurting or assaulting. And then, of course, Julia. I don't know if there were any other victims. And, of course, you know, we want all of these bad people to be in jail. But at the same time, when people are struggling mentally, that's an issue. And that's something that needs to be addressed while they're locked up. I mean, this was a long time ago. We didn't have the resources that we have now. But I also know that things don't get addressed now, which is why I'm bringing that up. Yeah, and it's it's hard, too, because, like, he was clearly struggling with something if, like, if he was trying to kill himself at the age of 14, like, before his first instance with that first woman even happened. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think he was clearly going through something, but the mental health system wasn't what it was 
what it is now back then, obviously. Right. Um, that's, that's what they did. If you were mentally ill back then, they just locked you away. Right. If you were a woman on her period PMSing, they just locked you away. Like, that's just, that's just how it was. Exactly. So it is unfortunate, but I mean, it, at least he was put in jail. You know what I mean? Like, I know that that's sad, but he took someone's life. Yeah, at least he was found guilty and at least he was, you know, sentenced properly. Um, however, you don't have a whole lot of control of what people do to themselves once they're they're locked up. Right. But I definitely feel like the the system failed him as far as like mental health, but again, mental health programs didn't really exist either in England or in the US in the early 1900s. Like this cuz this happened in the 20s, right? It happened in the late 20s, yeah, 1928. Yeah, so I mean it's definitely it's not yeah. what it is now, so I agree. And he was he was really young too, so and honestly, if I just started seeing what's his face's face from that movie, um, I'd probably lose my shit too. Because his face is creepy. It is a very creepy face. It's definitely not something I want to close my eyes and see. What was that movie called again? London, London after, midnight. after Midnight. And then unfortunately, a few months after filming the movie Thunder, Long Cheney developed pneumonia and was then subsequently diagnosed with bronchial lung cancer. His condition soon worsened and was exacerbated after breathing in artificial snow made out of cornflakes, which lodged into his throat and created a serious infection. Seven seven weeks after the release of his first and only talkie, The Unholy Three, Cheney succumbed to a throat hemorrhage on August 26, 1930 and died. You know what that reminds me of is the snow in uh, The Wizard of Oz. The Wizard of Oz, yeah. Because wasn't it asbestos? Mm-hmm. Which causes, um, like, lung disease and um, it starts with an M. Not malaria. Mesothelioma? Yes. Good job, Kara. Yay. You nailed it. Mesothelioma. That is correct. Uh, but that's what the the artificial snow reminded me of. I mean, it's it's so insane how they you like how they used to make films, especially the Wizard of Oz, since we're on the topic of it, because the green paint was also toxic. The um, green paint and the silver paint, because the silver mm-hmm. paint I think contained aluminum or something. It did, and he got really sick. And I think didn't they have to replace the Tin Man? I believe they did. We'll have to do a whole Patreon episode about that maybe because there's so much to it. Yeah, and then I'm still convinced that that was a little person hanging in the background. Even oh. though they said it was an urban legend, but I'm still convinced. They said it was, like, a bird or, like, something else, but I don't know. I'm not buying it. That and the ghost and three men and a baby. <gasps> I will not that watch that movie. That freaks me out. I will not watch that movie because I don't want to see that part. Like, I've yeah. seen so many clips of it, and I'm getting chills, like, talking about it. But I will not watch that movie because of that. We're definitely going to have to do a series on the Patreon of just, like, I know it's not our, like, it's not our normal, um, like, niche, but just doing something fun with movies or shows would be really cool. Like, Urban Legends. 
Yeah, because I love movies. Like, I, I don't know. Robert and I try to watch a movie at least once a week. We've been, right now we're rewatching all the old season of Hell's Kitchen. So we just finished season <laughs> one and we just started season two. But that's like, because I have to have something on when we eat dinner. Mm-hmm. And I don't like movies because I don't like having to pause and come back because like, We'll eat dinner, and then I get up and do dishes, and then I sit down, and then I have to use the bathroom, and then I'm washing right. the face. So it's like we're constantly pausing. But, like, we just watched uh, A Knock at the Cabin, which is the M. Night Shyamalan movie. Yeah, we watched that. It was good. It was really good. It was entertaining. So, yeah. Anyway. But, yeah, we'll definitely have to do something like a rewatcher or something on the Patreon or a new movie because, like, there's plenty of movies that I've seen that you haven't and vice mm-hmm. versa. So definitely something to look forward to in the future once we get a hang of this whole podcast thing. Totally. Because uh, I, as as many episodes as we have, I'm still not convinced that we have a full hang on it. <laughs> no. And, you know, we appreciate you guys bearing with us. I know some of these are harder to get through than others. We definitely make a lot of mistakes. We're not perfect. We're not used to doing this. And so we appreciate you guys while we're finding our footing, hanging with us. And if you could tell your friends about it, um, if you want to subscribe to the Patreon, that would be great. We're, we want to keep bringing these episodes to you. Um, you can also follow us on social meds. <laughs> Everything is just sentenced pod. So Instagram, Facebook, Patreon. Um, is that it? Oh, uh, and, the, and Gmail. <laughs> yeah, send us an email and let us know what kind of cases you guys are looking forward to hearing about. Yeah, definitely cases that are like more so, you know, um, regional. So ones that, you know, you've heard about, but you've never heard another podcast cover it. But again, we only want to cover cases that have a resolution. We want to try to avoid any cold cases um, because that kind of defeats the purpose of us being called sentenced uh, Mm -hmm. because we want we want the person to be sentenced. Either they're sentenced to life, sentenced to death, sentenced to nothing, but they were found guilty by either sentencing themselves to whatever eternal darkness they sentence themselves to like mm-hmm. my last episode he was never fully found guilty but we know he did it right so something like that we want to know who did it like who done it like I don't mm-hmm. I don't like the unknown so I don't either and it just it's it just makes it even more dark like at least we can have some kind of closure in these cases because we know that justice was served the only unknown I like is with like the supernatural and like UFOs and stuff when I like that. <laughs> well, I mean, it's entertaining at least. I just That's rewatched, true. didn't rewatch, but I just watched season three of Skinwalker Ranch. So mm-hmm. that was fun. You should watch that show. I think you'd like it. I don't have time. Wow. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> I'm so busy. Well, thank you everybody for listening. Um, and we will see you in the next episode. Thanks for listening, guys. Bye. Bye.